Today's scripture comes from the book of Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, verses one through six. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now, on the twenty-fourth day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting, and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood, and they confessed their sins. And the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani. And Shenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, that is Yeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, "Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise." You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome, everyone. Um, as you may or may not be able to see,、uh, I'm not at my home this morning,、um, but here at New Brunswick Theological Seminary.、Uh, it's really good to be back here、um, to see some real people right in front of me、uh, as I give the word today.、Um, it was a weird sensation this morning, just getting into my routines of preparing for、uh, worship today,、um, putting on a suit which I normally do, but putting on the shoes. Felt really, really、uh, strange this morning, and so here I am. And I just again want to thank our、uh, recorporating committee for putting all this together and making、uh, today possible.、Uh, I look forward to seeing more of you next Sunday when we gather here for our first、um, in-person、uh, worship that we're going to do. And、um, if you haven't already,、uh, you can still sign up、uh, using the link from this week's Wednesday Word.、Um, and so、uh, I hope to see many of you. Uh, in the coming weeks, this is now the fifth sermon in a series of sermons、uh, I've been preaching on the topic of worship. I know that virtual meetings have been difficult and tiring、uh, for schools, for work. I know that virtual meetings present all sorts of technological as well as psychological challenges. However, I think virtual worship has been especially difficult for Christians theologically. Because so much of our understanding of the faith and of our life together has to be about being embodied and being a gathered people, and because most of us commute to New Brunswick, the time that we have together on Sundays is especially valuable. I can remember in years past when missing even one Sunday made me feel very disconnected from the church. Thankfully, I've seen many of you. Face to face during the pandemic at six feet 
distance. But I suspect that many of you have not seen most members of the church in over five months. That is a really long time to go between meetings. So as we look forward to at least a few of us, some of us gathering together starting next week, we continue to think about the meaning of worship and how we might continue to adapt uh, during this season. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made and the opportunity to be together and to gather in your presence. I ask now once again that in the preaching of your word, we might hear from you and in the hearing, help us to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been reviewing the uh, various aspects of worship and we've been thinking about it in its three dimensions. I mentioned that worship consists of the posture of the body, that is primarily in terms of kneeling and bowing. We've been thinking about worship as the orientation of life, that we are to worship God in spirit and truth with clean hands and a pure heart. And there is this third aspect, a service of liturgy, that is the rituals and creeds and our gathering together for corporate worship, what we do together on Sunday mornings. Worship requires of us the physical, the ethical, as well as this liturgical engagement of our whole being and the engagement of the entire community. In this week's Wednesday Word, I mentioned that the word liturgy comes from the Greek, and it literally means the work of the people. We use the word liturgy to talk about the order of our worship service, but it is synonymous with worship. One of the most interesting uses of the word that I mentioned, uh, again, appears in Hebrews 8, where Jesus is described as our heavenly high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the holy places. That Jesus, this word minister, is this word for liturgist. That Jesus is the liturgist in heaven. I don't know about you, but I love picturing Jesus, who is not only the center of our worship, but who is also going to lead us in worship as the liturgist. And I've wondered how he might handle a Zoom service. It's more than a theoretical question, because our worship is following the liturgy that was revealed to ancient Israel using the patterns from heaven. And it was those patterns that was practiced, developed, and adapted over the centuries, first in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and then in the synagogues, and then in our churches. Last week, we saw that one of the key adaptations in moving away from synagogue worship in the early church was the replacement of circumcision with the rite of baptism, a more inclusive rite, as the new sign of initiation into the faith community. The waters of baptism are tangible signs given to us signifying this new reality, the new life made possible in Jesus Christ. It's a sign and seal of God's promises of grace and eternal life in Jesus Christ. In his baptism, death, and resurrection, we also die to our old selves. We also drown our sins in those waters, and they are buried forever. And we are raised anew 
ready to join our brothers and sisters in the newness of life, the newness of life that we gather together now in worship. So when we worship together, we do a number of things, but we always begin with prayer, and specifically, a prayer of confession. In fact, um, you know, we begin our worship uh, a couple of minutes before 11. We are with a, with a song to give you an opportunity to kind of meditate and to pray as a kind of a pre-worship prayer to get ready for um, worship. And it's not explicitly stated, but I know that many of you take those couple of moments to prepare your hearts to get ready to worship as a way of confessing before God as you enter into worship. And I think it's especially important during this season where we're having these virtual worship services to show up on time and to get here a little bit early to take those couple of minutes to prepare your hearts, to get ready for worship, to try to minimize the sense of just kind of catching worship or, or watching worship as a way of trying to make yourself be more engaged and to offer up a service of worship. Then at 11 o'clock, the liturgy begins with a call to worship with the liturgist's opening words, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Those words of blessing are a reminder to each of us that we are now in the presence of God. The Lord be with you. The Lord is here. And with that reminder, with our hearts God-centered, we then offer a prayer of confession silently and then collectively. And of course, throughout the service, we also offer many other prayers. There is a prayer that, um, that I pray before the sermon. There are the pastoral prayers that uh, Pastor Doi and I give at the end of the sermon. There's the Lord's Prayer, which we used to do uh, during the time of communion, but which uh, we now do it after the sermon uh, when I remember to do the Lord's Prayer. Um, there's the offertory prayer of thanksgiving and dedication after the offering given by the liturgist. There are also the songs that we sing, the praise songs, which are really just prayers uh, with musical accompaniment. So our entire worship of God is saturated with prayers. We pray to acknowledge God's presence, God's power, God's goodness. We pray to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. We pray that we might hear a word from God. We pray interceding on behalf of others, such as our mission partners. We pray asking for God's kingdom to come. We pray for our needs to be met, whether food, friends, or faith. We pray with the assumption and understanding that the God we pray to is a good God and a mighty God who hears us and is able and wanting to help us. Otherwise, what's the point of prayer? It would be no better than wishful thinking. For example, one of the most interesting prayers uh, I've come across comes from a Sumerian tablet from the 7th century BCE, although the prayer itself is thought to be older. It's known as the prayer to every god. It's a prayer that was offered to every god. It begins by addressing the wrath of an unknown god or goddess. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted 
toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. The one offering this prayer has no idea to whom he is praying to. If it's a god or a goddess, it might be a god that he, maybe he knows, or it might be a god that is completely unfamiliar to him. What he does know is that he thinks that this god or goddess is angry with him. And so he confesses to an unknown sin. He says, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. The transgression which I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed, I do not know. The forbidden thing which I have eaten, indeed, I do not know. The prohibited place in which I have set foot, indeed, I do not know. He knows he's done something wrong because this God that he knows or doesn't know is angry with him. He's suffering, but he has no idea what he's done wrong. And so he's just trying out all kinds of different things. He admits to a variety of possible sins, which may or may not be a sin against a God that he knows or doesn't know, or a goddess that he may or may not know. He, he makes the classic wrong assumption that his suffering must be a direct result of having angered an angry God or goddess. He writes, the Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. And so finally, he begs for mercy to this known or unknown God or goddess. Oh, my Lord, do not cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin which I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression which I have committed, let the wind carry away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. Oh my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. You know, I get the sense that this is a sincere penitent. He's earnest, he's sincere, and he's confused. He's suffering and he seeks relief and forgiveness. He senses that there is something wrong, though he doesn't know what that is exactly. He doesn't know which God is real and to whom he needs to pray. So he prays to the gods he knows about and to the gods that he knows he doesn't know about. He knows that he needs help beyond the help that is available to him. He wants forgiveness and an end to his suffering, but he's fearful and is simply trying to appease whatever gods there may be. It's a sad, desperate, Hail Mary kind of a prayer of confession. He's just throwing darts into the dark, hoping that it hits the right target, if the target is even there. Similarly, we get similar, uh, same kind of story in Acts 17. The apostle Paul is walking through the city of Athens, and he notices that it's full of idols, that the people are very religious, and he even finds an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, an altar dedicated to an unknown God. The people were very serious about religion. What we would say today, they were very, very spiritual, but they had no idea to whom they were praying. So they had all these temples for all these gods, and they even had an altar dedicated to a God that maybe they just weren't even aware of. 
the prayer and the altar that Paul saw are ancient, but they also ring contemporary to me. People today acknowledge that there is something wrong, that there is something fundamentally wrong with themselves, with their communities, with our world. People are looking for answers, but they don't know where to turn or to whom to turn. So people continue to make up gods that make sense to them, to combine various traditions, or take a vaguely deistic or agnostic position. But it is not so for the people of God. It is not so for the people of Nehemiah's day. They knew clearly who they were praying to and for what. They knew that in their confession, they would be heard and be forgiven. I doubt any of you will remember, but about five years ago, I gave a sermon on the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, which I entitled, The Best Worship Service Ever. Because the people gathered for what was going to be probably the best worship service that they would ever experience in their lifetime. The entire community showed up for worship. They worshiped for seven days with their bodies. They had feasts. They had fellowship every day for a week, and they helped each other as they listened to the Word of God for six hours a day for a week straight, and they helped each other to understand God's Word. And as a result of that, everyone experiences this great joy, this great joy. But after those seven days, we get to the ninth chapter. On the eighth day now, there is this drastic shift in tone, as you heard this morning. Instead of celebration and feasting, the people assemble with fasting and sackcloth. They heard God's word again for three hours, but this time it's followed by three hours of prayers of confession. The people were led in a prayer of confession for their sins and the sins of their fathers. You just heard the beginning of the prayer in our reading today, but the rest of the prayer looks something like this. The prayer begins by addressing God and praising God for God the Creator. And then the bulk of the prayer, verses 7 through 31, is a kind of a recollection, a remembering of what God has done for God's people in history by choosing Abraham, by delivering the people from slavery in Egypt, by providing for them through the 40 years of wandering in the desert, the promise of the promised land and the blessings therein. The repeated cycle then in the time of the judges of repeated sin and rescue again and again and again. And then after recounting the story of God and God's people, they admit to their sins and they tell God, this is what's going on, that we are suffering now and we acknowledge the fact that it's because we have been disobedient. And so they close their prayer by recommitting themselves and renewing their covenantal promises to God. The prayer calls upon God, whom they know and whom they have known historically. They know this is a God who has repeatedly loved and cared and has rescued his people. This is God, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the King of glory. They've experienced this God as the Holy One of Israel, whose mere shadow of glory outshines the brightest stars. This is a God who at the same time is a God 
who has patiently rescued his people again and again. The prayer of confession admits and agrees with God that they have once again sinned and are deserving of the suffering that they are suffering in the hands of their enemies. Yet because they know this God, they are able to make this confession and to make a petition for renewal and to commit themselves once again and submit to God's ways. It's a good promise to make again and again, even though we know it will be broken again and again. But that's the prayer of confession that we make and we need to make every day and every week. And it's what we do, in fact, together every week. We confess. We admit our sins. We ask for help. And we strive then to do better in obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our prayer. Each week, we have to remember to confess and ask for help once again. By confession, we admit our weakness, our need for forgiveness, our need for help, for healing, for courage, and so many more things. But at the same time, and more importantly, confession reminds us of who God is and what God has done. When we offer prayers of confession, it's important to recall not only the story of our sins and our shortcomings, because that would just lead us to discouragement. More importantly, we need to remember God's history of God's intervention and ongoing forgiveness. Recalling God's actions throughout history reminds us once again of who God is and gives us the confidence to approach God in prayer, to admit, to confess, to know that they will be heard and be forgiven. Maybe some of you are feeling that God is distant at this moment. Maybe you've been discouraged or depressed about some struggle that you've been having over some particular sin that persists in your life, that you failed again and again. Maybe this season of quarantine has left you extra tired and dry. But when we come together in worship and confess our sins together, when we recount together and remember the story of God and of God's intervention in the lives of God's people, in the scriptures, in the history of the church, and in our shared story together, we can see once again God's enduring faithfulness and goodness. God's mercy is repeated in every generation. They are new every morning. How many times are we to forgive one another? Seven times? Seventy times seven? How many more times then will God forgive us in Jesus Christ? God's promises are everlasting. God's covenant signed in the waters of baptism are never rescinded. God's promises are greater than our weaknesses. So the more you know this God, the more confidence you can have in approaching this God with your prayers of confession. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses tells the people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God has revealed himself to us. Not only that, God has revealed his ways to us so we know what is right and wrong and what can be done about our wrongs. We do not pray to an unknown God in the dark about what's right and wrong. We are told repeatedly and clearly who God is and what we are to do, that we are to love God and to love one another. God is noble, wants to be known. God's ways are noble and are to be obeyed. God has revealed himself to us, not only as the almighty creator, but as the father who seeks to give good gifts, who is ever willing to rescue and forgive and invites us into a deep and abiding intimacy with him. Nehemiah's people prayed their confession with confidence because they knew the story of their God and what God had done for his people. And we can have the same confidence in our prayers. 1 John 5 teaches us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us and he will forgive our trespasses. Paul said in Ephesians 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can pray this way. We can have confidence in our confessions because of what Christ has done for us. God invites us to the throne. So let us boldly and unabashedly confess our sins together, trusting in the God who loves us. And you know that when we confess our sins together, the liturgist always gives us a word of assurance. Hear now the good news. It's, it's really incredible news. It's mind-boggling, revolutionary news. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Let me close with this. Frederick uh, Buechner's novel, The Final Beast, has this scene in which um, someone is talking to a pastor because this pastor just has, an, has had an encounter with a woman who's been heavily burdened by, this, uh, by a guilt of sin. The woman has been suffering and struggling over the sin. And so this person begs the pastor to declare God's forgiveness to her. The pastor misses the point and says that the woman already knows that the pastor himself has forgiven her. And so he gets this reminder. She doesn't know that God forgives her. That's the only power you have to tell her that. Not just that he forgives her the poor little adultery, but the faces she can't bear to look at now, the man's, her husband's, her own half the time. Tell her God forgives her for being lonely and bored, for not being full of joy with a house, household of children, houseful of children. That's what sin really is, you know, not being full of joy. Tell her that sin is forgiven because whether she knows it or not, that's what she wants more than anything else. What all of us want. What on earth do you think you are ordained for?
to the woman in Buechner's novel, to the unknown penitent who pray the prayer to some unknown and every God, to the people of Athens who dedicated an altar to an unknown God, and to every one of you who has confessed and might be wondering, confused or uncertain, or even have the slightest doubts about the forgiveness of your sins, let me fulfill my ordination. I declare to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. I declare to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Believe the good news and be at peace. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And now we pray together the prayer our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.